Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Archana Venkatraman. Archana is the John C. Malone Assistant Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering at John Hopkins University. Archana, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you, Sam, and thank you for inviting me to be here today. I'm really excited about our conversation, and uh, we'll jump right in uh, by having you share a little bit of your background. It sounds like you had maybe more clarity than most, starting from as early as the fourth grade. Uh, Yes. Uh, So um, both my parents are engineers. Uh, My mom is a professor of electrical engineering, and my dad is a professor of mechanical engineering. So as you can imagine, we had a very strong educational focus growing up, and I decided fairly early on engineering was very cool. It was a way of solving problems, and I was very good in math and science, and I enjoyed them. And so around fourth grade is when I asked my mom about uh, colleges and where to go to college and what were good schools, and she said that the best school was MIT. And I checked, and it was very close to home, which in the fourth grade was important to me. So I decided I would go to MIT. And so I worked through middle school, high school, um, learning lots of science and doing many extracurricular activities, uh, and finally did end up going to MIT for undergrad. And I liked it so much, I stayed there for master's and PhD. And through that educational pathway at MIT. I started in electrical engineering. Um, I explored different areas. So I did research experiences in devices, in nanofabrication. Um, And through those research experiences and coursework, I realized I loved signal processing. So that was the area that really gravitated towards me. Um, I loved the idea of transforming signals into various domains to understand different properties, of being able to estimate properties and characterize uncertainty. And so uh, that was my concentration in undergraduate. And I did a master's with Alan Oppenheim, who is one of the fathers of of modern day signal processing. Um, And we looked at different signal representations. And I found that a very worthwhile experience and definitely helped me build fundamentals. But at the same time, I always was missing an application to it. And that's how I stumbled upon my PhD direction, which was uh, loosely medical imaging. So sort of translating these properties of informatics and data science into understanding brain functionality through functional neuroimaging data, fMRI. And uh, at the same time, still exploring and learning more and applying ideas from machine learning to these data streams and to different clinical populations. And that's kind of how my career has evolved. And uh, I'm really enjoying the ride so far. And do you have a, a more pointed focus currently at Johns Hopkins? Or are you looking out broadly around the, the intersection of these areas? So I think my research right now is very broad. So the most general characterization is that we are developing new machine learning tools and frameworks and algorithms to better 
understand and potentially treat neurological and psychiatric disorders. But in the space, in the neurospace, this is a very broad spectrum. So it ranges from basic science type questions where the goal is biomarker discovery and exploration through uh, the ideas of clinical translation. So how do we provide information that might be helpful or actionable to even uh, very far out there explorations of of trying to understand perception and being able to alter perception, again, using different data streams and machine learning tools. And I would say throughout the spectrum, everything is very different. The disorders that we work on are different. The data sets that we use are different. And then our modeling approaches are different. Um, but they still have that flavor of kind of machine learning. So how much can you mine from the data? What can you understand? And what can you formulate and pass on as information? Uh, let's maybe dig into one or two of those areas to get a sense for the way you're able to apply machine learning. Uh, you mentioned uh, basic science is, is mm -hmm. one of the foundational areas, and you're looking at things like biomarker discovery. How do, do MLM AI play into that? So, one of the kind of uh, the fields or disciplines that I've been heavily involved with is the um, branch of, I guess, computational neuroscience known as uh, connectivity. So it's at a high level, it's treating the brain as a network of interconnected parts and not only looking at specific functionality of a region, but also considering that regions communicate with each other in different ways and trying to build models based on those communication patterns. So the data that we use is called resting state fMRI data. So unlike a conventional MRI uh, acquisition where you would have the subject perform a certain task in the scanner, resting state differs in that it's a passive acquisition. So the subject is just instructed to lie there uh, quietly, passively, and oftentimes just fixate on a crosshair. And what people have shown over the last decade or so is that the correlation patterns in this kind of steady state signal, they actually reflect different functional systems in the brain. So they tell us about communication patterns that are relevant in terms of cognitive functionality and biological functionality. And so based on this data, um, there have been a lot of sort of work of trying to formulate machine learning questions, and they typically involve predictions. So can we predict, based on this functional connectivity data, uh, which uh, subjects have a neurological disorder and which don't? And as sort of in, in conjunction with that prediction, can we identify different co-activation patterns or connectivity patterns in the brain that are sort of predictive of eventual diagnosis? Um, and so that is kind of the general area. Now, the work that we're doing right now is going one step beyond just a simple binary classification, so prediction of case versus controls. And we're trying to say, can we, from this fMRI data, predict clinical severity of a particular uh, patient? And we've our, the data that we've been using and our focus thus far has been on autism spectrum disorder. And the reason that 
sort of this continuous prediction task is relevant is because in any neuropsychiatric disorder, you just have a range of different um, behavioral characteristics, different symptom severity, different uh, ability to respond to to various interventions. And so building these predictive models, um, first of all, it allows you just in a black box sense to figure out what are strengths and weaknesses of different patients in your cohort. And also uh, incorporating these ideas of biomarker discovery, if you can emphasize or if you can pick out or extract certain patterns in the brain that are relevant for understanding clinical severity or different manifestations, it might give other researchers a clue as to how do we develop better uh, behavioral therapies, how do we evaluate behavioral therapies in terms of observing these patterns and and watching as they they grow and fade, and potentially how do we develop new therapies um, based on other imaging techniques or other uh, modalities such as uh, sort of drug discovery or um, electrostimulation, et cetera. How far along are you in this line of research? So this, again, it's very much at the level of basic exploration. So right now we have developed frameworks. So they're, again, new machine learning frameworks that couple this uh, discovery component, which is interpretable, which we're using a dictionary learning type framework with a predictive modeling. So just at a high level, a regression type framework. Um, And so we've been able to, unlike other methods that we've seen and other methods that we've tried, we're able to predict severity to some extent, and we're even able to predict multi-score severity. So if you are looking at different um, quantifications of the patient, so being able to sort of simultaneously understand those. Um, With that said, I mean, there's certainly a a prediction error, which is one re- where one direction we're moving in, and I think the way to tackle this is another aspect that machine learning is very good at, which is integrating data across different data sets. And so now we're trying to bring in other imaging types to get a more comprehensive picture of brain functionality or brain communication or connectivity, um, hopefully to improve that moving forward. But at the same time, our predictive models right now, they're performing at what is currently state-of-the-art in the field. And at the same time, we're able to preserve that interpretability. And so we're finding patterns and interactions that are um, sort of interpretable from the autism standpoint and could eventually provide some sort of biomarker that might be meaningful. You mentioned that the models that you're using are state-of-the-art. Are there well-established benchmarks for these types of problems? In this space, so in the neurospace and in the functional connectomic space, I think one of the challenges is that we don't have very good benchmarks, both in terms of methodology and in terms of data. And so this is one of the reasons why um, the kind of neurospace and especially functional neuroimaging is unlike other areas where AI or machine learning has has made very rapid advancement. So if you think about computer vision and image image uh, recognition and activity recognition, there are vast open source data sets of millions and millions of examples. Mm-hmm. And here we are developing machine learning frameworks that essentially have to learn from tens of examples. And tens of examples to learn very complex functions means that 
sort of out of the box algorithms tend to fail. And so it's a lot more about building structured assumptions into the model, in part to reduce the parameter space and in part to try and guide what you think is reasonable around all of the noise in the data itself. I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into the the models and this framework. And when you say models and framework, are you using those interchangeably more or less, or do they have very distinct meanings for you? No, I use them interchangeably. Okay. And so you mentioned that the framework is, you said dictionary layered, um, and I I think I missed a word there. Uh, Dictionary learning. Ah, dictionary learning. And so can you elaborate on how you're using uh, the elements of the framework to incorporate in the a priori knowledge about the relationships between the system level knowledge that you mentioned? So the way we are incorporating or structuring the model, it's uh, in essence, we so the the dictionary learning component, or you can think of it as a basis expansion component, essentially what it assumes is that the kind of global connectivity pattern that we observe, which in our case is an input um, positive semi-definite correlation matrix, it is explained or it can be represented by a sparse collection of what we call elementary subnetworks. So these are canonical patterns of coactivation across the brain. You mentioned positive uh, semi-definite connection matrix. This is your sparse matrix of connections between these different, and what level are you looking at? Are these connections between neurons or larger structures in the brain? Uh, so the the correlation matrix, it's a Pearson correlation matrix. Um, the dimensionality is uh, region, so region in the brain. So if you if you think of the brain, um, you can parcelate it into different regions, and there are kind of standard anatomical atlases that capture um, specific structures. And so they try to to parcelate in a sort of a biologically meaningful fashion. So the benefit of region parcellation is that you reduce the amount of noise that's there if you take individual voxels, which are kind of the smallest unit of volume, very analogous to pixels in an image. So at the voxel level, this this data is very, very noisy and very variable. So by kind of averaging across a, a slightly, well, a larger region, you tend to reduce some of that random noise. Mm-hmm. So once you've done that parcellation, uh, you essentially have in this fMRI data a time course or a signal from every region. And so you can compute a correlation matrix where every element of the correlation matrix is just the correlation between the time course at one region and the time course at another region. Okay. And so in this uh, sort of functional connectivity, brain connectivity space, that's a standard input that people use into modeling frameworks. And it's kind of the, the elementary unit of information that we tend to extract from these uh, resting state fMRI data. Are these connectivity matrices, do you get them as a uh, essentially a time series of these connectivity matrices? So there has been a little work in looking at dynamic evolution. Um, The most common approach is just to kind of compute a single correlation matrix across the entire acquisition. So the acquisition okay. is about six minutes long. Okay. So if you think of the uh, sort of N by N, region by region as the dimensionality of this correlation matrix, that's the input to the model. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so we assume that input can be represented by sort of a low rank decomposition of elementary subnetworks. So a subnetwork you can think of as a pattern of coactivation across the brain. So almost like a heat map of which regions are coactivating or highly correlated with each other and which regions are anti-correlated with each other. Mm-hmm. And so that is kind of the structured assumption. Well, one of the structured assumptions of the model. Uh, the second assumption is that what is um, what is differing on a individual level is the contribution of those subnetworks to kind of to create uh, an entire brain connectivity or entire brain functionality. And so, because well, those contributions. Um, so not only are they salient for the model for the data representation, so those are the features that we are using in the predictive modeling. And so there's a coupling between the data representation and the predictive modeling. And so in the predictive modeling, what we're trying to do is actually predict uh, some measure of clinical severity. So you can, uh, in autism, there are kind of different batteries that you can use to quantify clinical severity. The most common is called the autism diagnostic observation schedule. So um, it's typically administered on children and it's uh, it's like a clinician evaluation um, where they kind of create settings for the child to play and the child to describe um, sort of different stories and to observe uh, different of movie clips and explain what they think is happening. And so there's kind of a standard battery that is used to come up with a level of severity or a level of deficit for autism. And so your your model is making predictions into the, the space of this uh, diagnostic system. Is, and it, what does that look like? Is that a kind of a one to 10 numeric scale or is it multidimensional across different types of behaviors or expressions of the disorder? The ADOS exam, it's so that typically you would use the kind of the the total measure that they the clinician quantifies across this this behavioral paradigm and get a single number and it ranges from approximately zero to thirty, okay. just based on how it's designed. There are other uh, diagnostic criteria that we're also using and also and they provide a little bit different perspective of the patient. So. The second one is called the social responsiveness scale. So this is actually a parent report. So instead of observing the child, you give a questionnaire to a parent or a caregiver or a teacher about the behavior of the child. And that's a different way of of scoring in terms of clinical manifestation. And then we're also using another type of behavioral paradigm that was developed by or is commonly used by our collaborators. at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. And so this is a, um, it's a behavioral paradigm that essentially measures the ability of autistic children to perform gestures on command and also to imitate gestures. And so one of the interesting um, observations of children with autism is that in addition to the well-known social issues, there are also issues with visual and motor systems. So visual and motor integration. So loosely hand-eye coordination is one of them. Ability to imitate gestures is another. And they that type of deficit almost parallels the social dysfunction. So that's a different scale that we're also trying to predict as well. You mentioned earlier that the frameworks that you've developed achieve state-of-the-art performance. Is that relative to other machine learning approaches or 
is this a scenario where you're comparing the results of your system to a clinician's ability to make predictions? I don't imagine clinicians are looking at fMRI data and trying to predict autism, or or am I wrong there? You you are correct. Clinicians do not use fMRI data to predict autism. So in most um, neuropsychiatric disorders, the prediction is well, the diagnosis is based on is based on behavioral information mm-hmm. and behavioral testing. Um, so when I say state of the art, what I'm what I'm what I'm trying to convey is just in relation to other machine learning algorithms. So on this data set, we have implemented a variety of algorithms from kind of basic regression models, which are very, very early iterations of, of machine learning through other kind of regression, well, sort of support vector regression, random forests, which are a little bit more current. And we've even tried end to end deep learning approaches and so in comparison to that spectrum, at least on our data set, we have found this kind of hybrid approach where we're looking, we're sort of coupling a data representation as well as the predictive modeling to essentially perform the best. Okay. And with the the advantage that you retain some degree of interpretability, which you may sacrifice in the end-to-end deep learning space. Yes. Yes. And so the work that you're doing looking at predicting autism here. This is just one of the many disorders that uh, you have looked at in your research. Another one is uh, epilepsy. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Uh, Sure. So the epilepsy project, um, it's a little distinct from what we're trying to do with autism in that the work with epilepsy is, is closer to clinical translation. So here, our goal is to actually provide information that would be relevant to clinicians as they are treating these patients. And so just to kind of give you a background on the application itself, um, so epilepsy is one of the most common neurological disorders. And so in general, the first line of defense is medication, and there are a variety of anti-epileptic drugs that have been developed. However, it's estimated that 20 to 40% of patients don't respond to medication in the sense that they'll continue to have seizures. And this is really our target cohort. Um, And so for these patients that are called medically refractory, so they don't respond to these anti-epileptic drugs, there's very limited alternatives. And it turns out the best alternative um, that we have right now is if we can identify and if we can trace the seizures to a specific region in the brain that's triggering them, then uh, clinicians can go in and surgically remove that part of the brain. And currently, um, that's kind of state of the art in terms of care, and that will probably have the best uh, likelihood of the patient recovering in terms of their seizures being alleviated. And so our focus is on this this realm of seizure detection and localization. So detecting when a seizure occurs, through sort of time series measurements and also being able to localize what is the general area of the brain and what is a specific area of the brain that the seizures might be coming from. So that, again, once we have that target, it can be acted upon. And so we're using a variety of, well, a variety of machine learning tools and developing new frameworks to be able to look at non-invasive data, so data collected from EEG and from MRI, um, in order to provide that localization information to clinicians. 
Can you talk a little bit about some of the models that you've developed uh, in some more detail? Sure. So much of the work, especially in the last few years, has focused on EEG data. So uh, EEG or electroencephalography is probably the first data first type of data that's collected for patients when they go into a hospital. And here they will, they'll actually be admitted into an epilepsy monitoring unit. Um, and these EEGs, so they're kind of sensors that are adhered to the scalp externally, they're placed on the patient and then the patient is monitored over several days um, so that when they have seizures, clinicians can record that activity happening. And so currently the state of the, well, this sort of standard of care is actually to identify seizures, both detect and localize by eye. So essentially, uh, a clinician will view all of these signals kind of on a, on a computer screen and scroll through them and then try and visually identify markers of a seizure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when it starts and also kind of based on when it starts, trying to trace where they think it's happened, it's it's originating in the brain. From the EEG, meaning they're looking at which of the leads, uh, is it as simple as which of the leads is closest to, you know, a region that is likely to be functioning in this way? It's very similar. It's kind of which of the leads are manifesting these particular signatures that they've been trained to recognize. Right. Okay. Um, And so, as you can imagine, this is very time consuming. It's prone to human error. Um, And so just one very kind of on the surface, simple task is just developing machine learning algorithms that can can do this automated detection. So essentially augmenting or replacing kind of what they're doing currently. Um, And it turns out this is a very challenging problem. And it's challenging because EEG data is extremely noisy. And in fact, the noise in EEG data tends to overwhelm the signal in terms of the particular seizure signatures. And the particular seizure signatures look a lot like baseline EEG. So if you or I were to look at these EEG recordings, we would not be able to tell at all what the origin of the seizure is. It's kind of years and years of training and and sort of pattern matching and building up models in their heads over um, kind of what what particular features are we looking for. And, and these features might change from patient to patient, et cetera. Um, and so the way we're approaching it is to recognize that just at instantaneous points in time, this data is extremely noisy and we might not be able to get a good detection. So kind of treat it as a temporal process and essentially to recognize that perhaps the spreading of these seizure activities or these abnormal activities are just as meaningful for identifying where and when the seizure is starting. So if a seizure is starting in a particular area of the brain, so that'll correspond to a certain area of of EEG electrodes, um, we expect that that activity will spread locally before it just jumps randomly to another area. And so by modeling this kind of local spreading pattern um, and then inferring kind of where and when it starts from the data, uh, we can potentially do a better job of both detection and localization. So the frameworks we're using here are based on probabilistic graphical models. And so uh, roughly these probabilistic graphical models allow you to specify 
um, sort of latent or hidden random variables, and they capture unobservable phenomenon, in our case, the spreading of the seizure activity. And then there's observed variables, which are related to the statistics of your data or the features of your data that you're interested in. And so sort of at a high level, these are this is the framework that we're looking at. And we're actually embedding some deep learning into this because the latent variables, they give us interpretability because what we really care about is the progression of a seizure and backtracking the onset of seizure activity. Um, and at the same time, we have a lot of EEG data. And so we're training deep neural networks or artificial neural networks as a complex likelihood function. So being able to mine different patterns from the data and kind of feed that into the more interpretable element of the model. Interesting. It sounds like a, a super challenging problem. Um, and one of the things that jumps out at me is we're often benchmarking uh, or training on uh, ground truth data. And mm-hmm. you know, I wonder, you know, how do we know how accurate the physicians are, right? And they're in the sense of, you know, they are making decisions based on this very noise, these very noisy signals, the same noisy signals that you have to deal with. And, you know, they make a decision to, um, you know, take some action, maybe remove part of, uh, someone's brain. Um, but how, how well do we know if at all, um, you know, how right they were, uh, in that, you know, it's, it strikes me as just very difficult to kind of localize from EEG data to a specific part of a, of a brain that's um, not acting correctly. So I that's a fantastic question. So I think there are many layers to that question. So in terms of clinician accuracy, it's actually unclear how accurate they are. Mm-hmm. So they do have a lot more information than just the EEG. They have the patient history. Um, patient behavior during a seizure is actually uh, supposed to be fairly relevant in terms of likely areas that the seizure might start. Um, Oftentimes they have MRI data, so a neuroradiologist can go through it and look for for just structural abnormalities. I don't know, and I haven't come across a systematic study that kind of quantifies asking a variety of experts across a variety of institutions and and then try and understand concordance between them. Um, One interesting statistic is that if you look at meta reviews, um, long-term seizure freedom, so uh, post-operative seizure freedom, so if they actually go in and remove kind of a, a part of the brain, it's not dramatically high. So, mm-hmm. After mm-hmm. so, if you're looking at five year seizure freedom rates, it's only about fifty percent. Okay, now, right. So it's again, we're not. There's many factors that could influence the fifty percent. So it could be that that particular patient developed some other type of lesion or problem, and that took over, um, or it could be that there was an error in the care pathway. So maybe that patient should never have gone for surgery because it turns out there were multiple areas of the brain that were triggering seizures and that was missed during the review. Um, or maybe the initial localization was incorrect. And, and so the incorrect portion of the brain was removed. And so I think it's unclear which of those factors are involved. And hopefully by inserting some machine learning into that process, um, it's not that we would replace clinicians because I don't think our algorithms are nearly at that point yet, 
but we might be able to provide information. And if we, if the algorithm identifies kind of contradictory information to what the initial evaluation was, it'll allow the clinician to go back and, and really focus on that other area and say, do I really think there's a problem there? Or is there something I might've missed? Right. Um, maybe we should check it out with another type of data modality. And are there... Uh, are you or other folks doing uh, multimodal models here? It, it strikes me that, um, you know, in, in your description of the resources that the physicians have access to to try to make a prediction, it's much more than just, you know, uh, time series data off of an EEG lead. There's a lot more that they're looking at. And so it would... Ultimately, we'd want models to be able to incorporate more of that data as well. Is that happening in the research? So that is exactly where um, my research is headed and so Mm -hmm. the work that we're doing in the lab. So we've been focusing on EEG just because it's more readily available. Sure. Um, And we recently received some internal funding, a, a competitive internal funding award to acquire multimodal MRI data for some of these patients. And so um, some of the work that I had done in my postdoc uh, a while back was, well, showed that uh, the resting state fMRI that I mentioned earlier for the autism project, that might actually be useful as another biomarker um, of seizure origin, especially in cases where there is no obvious uh, physical lesion that you can see in the brain. And so by incorporating this resting state fMRI information, structural MR, we're hoping we can get a finer grain picture. Um, and then again, once you have models in different modalities, you can look at concordance between them to first identify, is this a reasonable surgical candidate? And also what is the potential area where is most likely uh, the seizure local localization area. Uh, so we've talked about some of the basic science work you're doing, uh, the epilepsy work as an example of the how you're trying to translate uh, to treatment. You also mentioned work around perception. Uh, what yes. do you mean there? So this is an interesting project. Uh, it started as kind of a pet project idea of mine, but uh, I guess we've we've tried to pursue it. So the the sort of at a high level, what the project is trying to do is. Um, manipulate emotional cues in human speech. And the way this project idea came about is actually a lot of the work that I had done on autism. So my postdoc at Yale focused almost exclusively on autism. Again, it was more through imaging. But at the same time, um, I was thinking that one of the one of the hallmark features of autism is that the patients have difficulty perceiving social and emotional cues. And that's particularly true in verbal, so in language language domain. And so what if we could take speech and amplify emotional cues to the point where an individual with autism could understand them readily, right? So if it's a very exaggerated, it's at least high-functioning individuals don't tend to have a problem. It's when it's more subtle that they tend to differ in terms of their perception relative to their peers who don't have autism. So if we could do that amplification and if we could do it computationally, maybe we can use it as either way to study autism or as an assistive technology, right? Um, And by doing it computationally, you also have the benefit that you can start slowly undoing it, right? So you can think about doing a really 
well, so a really exaggerated emotion amplification. Mm-hmm. Um, and then over time, reducing it, or over the course of an experiment, reducing it and try and sort of quantify at the level an individual can perceive it. Um, it turns out that no one knows how to amplify emotional cues in speech. It's, <laughs> it's an unsolved problem. I was, I was going to ask that. Yeah. Um, it, it, in order to be able to do this amplification based on you know, with a, a dial that uh, adjusts to the, the level of requirement, we need to be able to do it at all. And I have not seen that. Uh, I think we're making a lot of progress on the, you know, detecting emotions via, mm-hmm. you know, facial uh, image data and speech data. Um, but I've not seen much in terms of kind of modulating steady state speech data to kind of add that kind of inflection. Yes, it it it's an unsolved problem, and it's mm-hmm. actually not a commonly studied problem. Um, I would say emotion from speech is hard in general, so even emotion recognition from speech is quite difficult mm-hmm. uh, without without the video data. I mean, accuracies tend to be fairly low, um, and then synthesis or this amplification process is even more challenging. So um, essentially. Uh, well, in order to actually implement the project idea, we have to figure out how to manipulate emotions in speech. And so um, that's one area that we're working on. And in order to manipulate emotions in speech, we need a data. And it turns out there are not a lot of parallel data sets, especially for English. Um, for other languages, I think there exist a few, but for English. And by parallel, I mean to say that if you want to learn a modulation function, you do want examples of consistent sentences and consistent actors, right? So you want the same person saying the same thing in different emotions to be able to learn a modulation function. And so uh, with uh, in a very, very talented undergraduate student and a very talented graduate student, uh, we collected this data. So we hired actors from the Baltimore area to come in and read different things with different emotions. And we have been developing AI frameworks to try and do this emotion morphing uh, process, which is what we call it, or this modulation process. Um, And I think we have some preliminary success and we're hoping to build off of it again with integrating these model-based frameworks and, and deep learning strategies. And it's been very interesting learning about this other field and and this other type of data, which I've never worked with before and what the the sort of tricks and subtleties are. Have you published the data set? So, yes. Uh, So the, we wrote an initial paper on the data set itself. um, And that was, that appeared at InterSpeech a few months or last month, I'm sorry. Um, And the data is available. So it's on my lab website. There's a link where you essentially have to fill out a Google form or we'll attach a Google form. And then uh, once that's done, we'll we'll send you a download link to, to actually download the data and play around with it. Got it. And what's the scope of the data set? How many uh, samples across? How many kind of neutral utterances? So this initial data collection, it was a little small scale. So what we focused on were very short utterances. So single words, multi-word phrases, and then just a simple noun-verb predicate sentence structure. Um, because, of course, linguistics play a role in, in emotion perception. And I think once you get 
very complicated. The, the number of linguistic configurations gets to be very high. So it's short utterances. So there are 10 actors, I believe, um, and sort of 250 utterances in five different emotions. So it's a total about six hours. Okay. If you just sum up the audio clips. And what's the approach to modulation? Are you using something that you might use to synthesize speech, like a WaveNet or something along those lines? Or are you um, doing more traditional signal processing? So it's a blend between the two. Um, so WaveNet is it's an outstanding tool, but the domain it's looking at is text-to-speech synthesis. Mm-hmm. So essentially, given text, it'll output speech. Um, and it'll output speech in this WaveNet voice, essentially. Uh, the problem that we're focusing on is kind of inputting speech and outputting speech. And so we've tried a couple of different techniques. Um, so essentially the input speech you can decompose into kind of a pitch contour, a spectrogram and an aperiodicity signal. So it's a standard analysis um, pipeline. And so what controls emotion tends to be intonation. So uh, in terms of perception and the signal that has a greatest role in intonation is the pitch contour. So how pitch varies um, as someone is speaking a word or a phrase. And so we've tried, so we're right now we're targeting this pitch contour as kind of this low dimensional feature representation that can help us do this emotion manipulation. Um, And so we've tried a couple of different things. We've just tried end to end pitch prediction. So, uh, inputting a pitch and then for a given emotion, just outputting a pitch value for that particular frame. Um, And then we're right now trying kind of a combination of a model-based approach that's based on sort of registration or uh, aligning signals um, using differential geometry or exponential mapping. And then that framework itself, we need to be able to predict the parameters of that warping or of that registration so that we're using some deep learning approaches to do the prediction. Um, and so the combination of the two is quite interesting. And we're sort of, again, trying to go further in terms of the analysis to get a more uh, consistent emotion warping process. This is a great introduction to some of the work you're doing there across uh what what sounds like a very broad array of projects. Uh, so hats off to you. <laughs> Thank you. I guess I'm I'm curious your thoughts on kind of where you see this all going. So I think it depends on the project. I mean, at a high level, we want to make everything work better than it currently does. <laughs> um, so again, in terms of the basic science to be able to do better, more targeted predictions with um, multimodal data. Um, so in that same vein, I have some projects, or I have another project on um, sort of understanding imaging and genetic interactions. So, um, and this is for schizophrenia. So being able to identify genetic markers that relate to imaging and also are predictive of diagnosis. And so kind of in that basic science realm to again, make the models more robust, more generalizable across data sets to extract biomarkers and potentially uh, with these collaborations, um, as additional data comes in, validate it on, sort of validate the models and algorithms on those so that they can be broadly disseminated as tools. I think on the translational side, um, we certainly want to do a better job of localization. So we just published um, 
probably the first method that kind of can take scalp EEG and then in in many cases just simultaneously detect and localize the seizures. But again, our accuracy is not as high as it needs to be for for clinical translation. And so to understand what sorts of other information can we put in there? Can we use more data to get a better predictive model? Um, And also to, again, see how this performs in a prospective fashion. Um, And at the same time, look at multimodal MR as another non-invasive, well, conglomeration of modalities and, and improve the prediction and be able to track that and validate that the outcome actually is reasonable. And then on the kind of the speech front, I think we have some preliminary success in terms of being able to do this emotion. So emotion warping. So both quantitatively sort of how well do we predict where that, what that emotional pitch contour looks like. Um, we've done some qualitative experiments where we've reconstructed the speech and and used uh, Amazon Mechanical Turk to see to have people rate the speech utterances, but we'd like to go farther than that. So definitely improve our ability to create emotions and to manipulate emotions, also to be able to generalize to longer phrases and do this in a more real time fashion. So I think that's the short term. And then <laughs> the long term is uh, in epilepsy, being able to create an automated pipeline for patients to come in and uh, be diagnosed, uh, sort of plan out best therapeutic strategy and and essentially improve outcomes. And then for the speech to actually use it to study different neuropsychiatric conditions and potentially uh, combine them with other assistive technologies. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to share all of that with us. No, thank you again for inviting me and and having me speak here. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.